0: Our sermon text this morning, as we have been considering uh, some of the narratives of Christ's birth. Last week we looked at uh, the shepherds, of course. They're in Luke 2. And this morning, as we are here on Christmas Eve, we're going to consider the magi, or as sometimes are called, the kings. So the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2 and verse 1. Hear God's word. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophets, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means lest least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. over the place where the child was, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream, they returned to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do now bow before you once again and ask that your spirits would attend unto the proclamation of your word, that you would stir up faith in our hearts, that you would help us to see once again the beauty and the wonder and the truth that is Christ our Savior, and in seeing him that we would be encouraged, that our joy would be uh, fulfilled in him. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the popular carol, of course, goes, We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And no doubt we have heard that already uh, this Christmas season. We may have even sung it. And it may be a favorite song of the Christmas season for many of us. Even though we know there are things about that carol that are not accurate, for example, these men that came to Christ, they were not kings, at least not in the sense of a civil magistrate that bears authority over others. We also know that, there. well, we don't know how many of them there were. There may have been three. There may have been two. There may have been 20 of them. We have no idea. Uh, They were plural in number. We just don't know how many. So who were, though, these mysterious men from the East? I mean, Matthew is the only four of the canonical Gospels to give us the narrative of the Magi. Why is that? Why would Matthew tell us this story in particular? Well, it's because Matthew's account of the Magi visiting Jesus is meant to give us a focus upon who really is the king in this story, and that is King Jesus. Christ Jesus is the King of all kings, and he fulfills the promise of God to build a kingdom for his people forever. And this narrative is a geographical apologetic to show us that Christ was born not only at the right time and in the right way and in the right line, but exactly in the right place where God said the Messiah would be born, Bethlehem, the city of David. You see, even as a baby, Jesus was already building his kingdom. And there are three lessons, three takeaways, I believe we find in this story regarding Christ the King and the kingdom that he is building. The first one is this, is that Jesus fills his kingdom with people whom you would not expect to be there. So Matthew begins by introducing us to this time and place of these events. He says there in verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We don't know how long after Jesus' birth these events took place. Most Bible scholars speculate that it was probably a couple years after the birth of Jesus. And that is because this event is followed immediately by Herod's violent slaughter of all the babies of Bethlehem, which were two years of age and under. In any case, Mary and Joseph and the Christ child are there living in Bethlehem during Herod's reign when these mysterious visitors come to see the baby. And the very point of this opening verse is to draw us in and capture our attention. That's why Matthew says, Behold, pay attention. Look at this. And then he tells us where they come from. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. He wants us to know hey, these guys, they are not from Jerusalem. They're not even from Judea, they are from the east. Arriving in Jerusalem, they then go immediately to the palace of King Herod to inquire where they might find this newborn king, which makes perfect sense when you think about it, because if anyone would know where this newborn king is, it would be the current king in Jerusalem. And so they go to Herod and they ask him, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That is an important title. Calling Jesus the King of the Jews has great messianic implications. Kings in Judah were anointed by oil as part of the rite of their coronation. And the name Christ itself means the anointed one. And it points to the fact that Jesus is the anointed chosen king of God to reign over his people. Within Matthew's Gospel, you can trace this theme that Jesus is the King of the Jews, yet He was rejected by them as their King. Despite that rejection, though, Jesus is their King, and He's the King of all, whether people will recognize Him or not. And that is something these Magi from the East understood. Because Jesus is more than just the king of the Jews, he's the king of Gentiles too, which is the very reason these magi visit him. You see, the light to the Gentiles had finally come. This story is almost out of place in Matthew's gospel. Because of all the Gospels, Matthew's is the most Jewish. He is speaking to a primary, primarily Jewish audience. His Gospel was written as a polemic, arguing that Christ indeed is the promised Messiah, the King in the line of David, who would deliver His people from their sin. And yet, unlike Luke's Gospel, for example who told us of the story of the shepherds, as we saw last week. Matthew, who gives us the most Jewish account in the Gospels, tells us the story of Gentile, non-Jewish people, magi who visit Christ. He doesn't even tell us about the shepherds. He goes right to these Gentiles Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the King of all nations, and all nations then ought to humbly bow before Him. Throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is portrayed as the light of the nations. For example, Speaking of the coming Messiah, God says through his prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And Jesus himself confirms that he is that light of which Isaiah spoke. When he says in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, the story in Matthew's gospel then confirms to us that Jesus is this light to the Gentiles. Because we see it in these non Jewish men from the East coming to pay homage to Christ the King. You see, the kingdom of Christ isn't a Jewish kingdom, it's a kingdom made for people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, a kingdom. Of all people groups, which means that it is a kingdom that includes people like you and like me. It doesn't matter what your nationality is or your background, from where you came, east, west, north, south, even Ohio. <laughs> now, Jesus is king over all the world, and he makes for himself a people from those that are from all over the world to be citizens in his kingdom by his saving grace. So let's consider more about the people that Christ brings into his kingdom because we see that in these magi. So who were these magi anyhow? What, what do we know about them? Well, obviously they were foreigners. We know that. But they are also a people in general, that were not trusted by others within Jerusalem. Magi were originally of uh, a Persian caste of priests who were found in the court of Persian kings as advisors. They were considered as to be scholars and scientists. They were well-learned men who studied the universe around them. They were known as experts in astrology, but they would also delve into superstitious idolatry and magical arts. And so to the people of Judah then, the Magi were a problem because of what they represented. They spoke of the past, of the history of Babylonian captivity. They came from the region of Babylon and Persia. They were like enemies. And so the presence of these Magi in Jerusalem would have been a reminder, an uncomfortable reminder, that the Jewish people had been conquered and scattered throughout the world. Furthermore, their associations with dark magical superstitions and arts would have raised alarm. They would have been considered as false prophets amongst the people of Jerusalem. And yet here they are, Magi from the east, by the grace of God, searching for Christ because God had given them a special revelation that the king of all kings had been born in Judah, that they should go there and meet him. And so, the first people in Matthew's gospel who seek out Jesus to worship him, they're not from the Jews, they're not the priests, or the scribes, or the Pharisees. But they are pagans from the Far East lands whose forefathers had at one time destroyed Judah and captured Jerusalem and led its people into captivity. And yet here they are to see the King, who is Jesus, honored not by His own people, but by these unexpected men from the East. But that is precisely the point of the gospel of Christ. That's what the gospel does. It takes the most unlikely and unexpected people and introduces them to Jesus Christ, where in faith they bow before him and are redeemed from all their dark paths. Jesus' kingdom isn't made up of those who pretend to have their act together or boast in their own sense of morality, but it's made up of the unexpected. Those who acknowledge their brokenness, their sin, their guilt before Christ as they bow to him in repentant faith. Yes, Jesus' kingdom is filled with people you would least expect The second thing that we take away from this story, though, is that not only is Jesus' kingdom filled with unexpected people, but it is unexpected people who were led there by God Himself. How does God bring people into the kingdom of Christ? First, by revealing the truth of the kingdom and its king to them. For this magi, or for the magi, this revelation of God to them was in the form of a miraculous star. So since these magi were scholars from the area of Bethlehem, they would have been exposed to the prophecies that the mess- messianic king would be born to lead his uh, people free from their long exile. They would have known a men like Daniel who had great influence in the Babylonian and Persian courts. And perhaps their interest in astrology combined with their studies of Hebrew prophecies were used by God then to bring them the point to be revealed to them the place of Jesus' birth. Regardless, though, of how they learned of who Christ was and when he would be born, what we do know is that there was this star that appeared to them as a sign to lead them westward. We don't know what this star was exactly. It was supernatural. Several theories have been proposed as to what this astrological event could have been. Some some astrologers have suggested this star may have been a comet which would explain its movement across the night sky, but that is rather unlikely because the star is said to have stood still over the place where Christ was born. Others have thought that perhaps this was a planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which did happen around 7 B.C., around the time when Jesus would have been born. And Jupiter was considered uh, by astrologers of the day to be a symbol of royalty, meaning that a king may have been born. Whatever the case, though, this star was supernatural. It was God's means of leading the Magi to Christ. It was His special revelation to them. And as we observed last week, God in His grace reveals the Son to us, which today He does through His Word and through His sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper and the Word of God read and proclaimed point us to Jesus the King. And just like the Magi, we are to respond to God's Word and the signs of His covenant in faith. Revelation that God gives us leads us to faith, and faith faith that truly rests in Jesus, the long-prophesied King, the light of the nations. And it was faith in the revelation of God then which spurred these Magi onward, in this epic journey from the east. Now think about this. Travel at that time was no small endeavor. It was expensive, involved a lot of planning and coordination. The Magi couldn't just log on to Travelocity and book a few tickets to Jerusalem. There were perils along the road. There were bandits and marauders. There were few inns. The ones that did exist were scattered across vast tracts of land, of wilderness. Many roads that had been built by Rome were remote. But this king was worth it. This king was special. He was worth risking the journey to find him because he was a special kind of king. And so in faith, they go off to find this king. And it's faith that leads them to worship. And so the Magi, as they finally arrive in Jerusalem, inquire where Jesus is to be born. And they say to Herod there in verse 2, we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. And when they finally came to Bethlehem and find the house where Jesus lived, what do they do? It says they immediately fell down and worshiped him. They bowed down a symbol, a posture of submission. They're acknowledging that Jesus is the king that they were seeking. You see, faith involves submission to Jesus' authority. It means that we give up authority over ourselves, our trust in ourselves, to trust in Christ alone. And we see this faith expressed in worship and the gifts they give as well. Gifts that are meant to honor and esteem Christ. And they are extravagant to say the least. Gold, of course, is a precious metal, the symbol of ultimate value. Frankincense was an expensive perfume that came from uh, Arabia and Ethiopia. It was burned typically in religious uh, occasions or special occasions. Myrrh was a luxurious cosmetic fragrance used both in life and death. As it was an embalming agent, it was used by those who could afford to use it. The point is that these gifts are valuable. And in giving them to Christ, the Magi are highlighting the surpassing worth of Jesus. In bowing down and worshiping Him, they are showing a sense of repentance, a reversal from that value system that they once would have held dear. For these items, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, would have been precious to them. They would have been signs of great wealth. And yet they're saying, no, this child, born in Bethlehem, is worth all that we can give. So if meeting Jesus was worth the journey, then knowing Jesus with worse the cost of the best gifts they could give. And what a reversal it was in their lives, demonstrating that they are no longer part of the kingdom of this world but wished to be part of the kingdom of Christ by faith. God had led them in His grace to the kingdom, and by faith they became its citizens. Which leads us to the third takeaway regarding the kingdom of Christ that we see in this narrative. So Jesus' kingdom is filled with unexpected people, people you wouldn't expect to be there like magi from the east, and they are in that kingdom because Christ, or God in His grace has led them to Christ. He led them there. But when they come into that kingdom, what happens is a collision with the kingdom they were previously part of, the kingdom of this world. You see, Jesus' kingdom collides with the kingdom of this world. Now as they go into Jerusalem and certainly it was sensible to go to Herod and ask, where is Jesus? It probably was a bit of a mistake as well on their part because of who Herod was. We know that this Herod was a ruthless man, and his reaction is one that reflects his fear and his anger and his hatred that often characterized his reign. Who was King Herod? Well, historically, this Herod is known as Herod the Great. He was a puppet king who was installed in office by the Romans in 40 B.C. to reign over the province of Palestine. He was not a Hebrew. He was not Jewish. He was Idumean, which made him rather unpopular amongst the Jewish population. Among Herod's achievements, though, was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And he did so with great extravagance. Gold was even used in the mortar of the bricks of the temple. And much of historic Jerusalem that you see today is the Jerusalem that Herod built. But Herod was a ruthless man. He would stop at nothing to expand and retain his power. His cruelty was legendary. He took the life of his own wife, uh, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, and his uncle, all because he was suspicious of them and wanted to maintain control and power. And of course, as we see later in this text, he's even willing to put to the edge of the sword the vulnerable children of Bethlehem. So it's no wonder when these magi from the east come that Herod reacts the way that he does. It says, when he heard that there's this king that was born, he was troubled. And that word translated trouble, it communicates the idea of being deeply and emotionally disturbed and alarmed. It's a mixture of both fear and rage. Perhaps a contemporary way of translating this would be to say that when Herod heard that the king of the Jews was born, he was triggered. (laughs) He was offended to the point of anger. And he was willing to do anything to preserve his own power. And so the first thing he does is, well, I'll talk to the religious leaders the chief priests, and gather them together. And what he assembles is, as we know in the Scriptures, to be the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin or court of Jewish priests who would try Jesus sometime later and demand his death. And so the Sanhedrin then, as they come to Herod, open the Word of God. And they look to the prophet Micah in the book of 2 Samuel and they say, yeah, uh, it says here that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in Judah. And though Bethlehem was a small town, from it would come one who would be the king, the shepherd of his people. And these words which reveal the location of Christ's birth also preach the gospel to Herod but he wants nothing to do with it. He rejects it. And as he hears these words, from his mouth comes a lie to respond to the Magi. Well, yes, go to Bethlehem. That's where Jesus will be born. Go and find him, and then come back and tell me, because I want to worship this king too. Of course, he has no interest in worshiping Christ. He wants to destroy Jesus because he feels his kingdom is threatened. And yet as horrifying as Herod's reaction and his lie is to this, we are not surprised by it. Because Herod is responding the way that the kingdom of this world always responds to the kingdom of God with fierce hostility You see, there are two kingdoms that collide here in Matthew chapter 2, and they exist in the world today. There is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. And you either belong to one or the other. There is no neutral ground. You are either in Christ by faith or you are against Him. The Scripture does not leave a third option. And so when you see then... Violence and anger and hatred in this world, that is the kingdom of this world at work. And when you hear people call that which is good evil, and that which is evil good, and they they glorify sin and reject the law of God, that is the kingdom of this world at work. When you read of God's people, of Christians in other parts of the world, being imprisoned and tortured or even killed for their faith, That is the kingdom of this world at work, waging its war against the kingdom of Christ. When you see people like Herod reject the plain truth that Jesus is Lord and King, and they replace Him with a Jesus of their own design, their own imagination, subject to their own values and ideals, that's the kingdom of the world. You see, at the very heart of this conflict is a question of authority. The question that the gospel poses to us is to whom will you submit? Will you bow to Jesus, the King who was born in a manger? Or will you bow to your own authority? Herod wanted to kill Jesus because he was so intoxicated with his own power. And it is that same spirit of Herod that is present in the kingdom of the world, which wars against Christ's kingdom today, which brings us to a final truth that we need to see in this story. And this is where our hope is. Because despite all the hate and the anger and the evil and the sin and the rage of the kingdom of this world, it never wins. It's already defeated. God preserves those who are part of Jesus' kingdom. As Christians, when you see the kingdom of this world rise up against the kingdom of Christ, it sure is easy to become discouraged. And oftentimes it seems that the church will either crumble to the pressures of the kingdom of the world and compromise the gospel so as to be relevant, or will be cursed by those social elites as some outdated relic of the past. And seeing that happen makes us fearful. It makes us anxious. Our our faith grows weak. But God in His tender mercy greets all of our fears and doubts with His gracious promises. Promises which are here to remind us even as we celebrate Jesus' birth during this Advent season that Christ the King is alive. He has conquered sin and the grave forever and he has established his kingdom forever and if we are part of that kingdom he will preserve us forever the clash between the kingdom of christ and the kingdom of this world is vividly portrayed in revelation chapter 12 where satan and the kingdom of this world is pictured as a great dragon who is ready to devour a child that was to be born of a woman that child is christ The dragon wants to actively destroy him and all who would pledge allegiance to that child. But what happens? The dragon is overthrown and cast down and defeated. John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. You see, that has happened. God has defeated Satan through Christ. God has already won, and He will preserve those whom He leads into His kingdom by His preserving grace. doesn't matter how loud that dragon might roar. God will preserve His people. We see him do that for the Gentiles. We see it in two ways. And we see him preserve Christ as well. You see, in those gifts that were given, they were of such extraordinary wealth that they, could have been, they would have been more than enough to support Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus as they had to flee from Herod's murderous rampage. And so he preserves Christ. He provides for the family as they leave to go to Egypt. Secondly, we see God preserve these magi as he warns them not to return to Herod, so they go another way. And God preserves those whom he had made his own. These first Gentile believers to come to Jesus, receive him as king, and worship him. Because God does this, we can be assured that the victory is already won. The kingdom of Christ stands now and forever. And it is a kingdom that is filled with unexpected people like you and like me. A kingdom to which we are led by God as we enter into it by faith. A kingdom that is, yes, in conflict with this world, but a kingdom that is preserved by his divine grace. So, if by faith you are part of Christ's kingdom, rejoice, do not fear. Worship your King with joy, just as these Magi did, knowing that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for its truth. We're thankful that you fill the kingdom with unexpected people, people we, we should not, would not expect to be there. And yet there they are. For you make us your own though we do not deserve it. So, Father, help us then that even when we hear the kingdom of this world roar like a dragon, to remember it is already defeated, that Christ is already on the throne, that He has risen as our Savior and Lord forever. Strengthen our faith in Him, even this Christmas season, and remind us that in Him We are preserved by your grace forever and ever. Amen.